We're working. We're going. We're going. We're live, baby. We, we are live. Welcome back to the Suspect Podcast. Um, I know it's been a couple weeks, guys. I'm so sorry. There's been a lot going on with the election. Yes. And COVID again? I don't know. Yep. It, it's never ending. <laughs> it's just like a vicious cycle. Literally. So we're back this week. Hannah's not with us again this week. We have Gabby back with us. So Gabby, welcome. Thanks Thank for being you. here. Thank you for having me again. Of course. We also have Gabby's new co-host here with us today. Um, he doesn't have a name yet. <laughs> <laughs> Gabby got a new dog and he is so fucking cute. Yeah, we've had him for exactly... 25 hours oh my goodness how do you feel like a mom tired (laughs) it's literally like a newborn happy yeah no it totally is it's like we brought our newborn home from the hospital and i'm just feeling like all the things (laughs) you're having postpartum exhausted (laughs) (laughs) stressed i'm happy i'm not i did not get enough sleep (laughs) yeah so if you hear any like squeaks and chortles (laughs) it's the little baby oh my gosh he's trying to sniff your paper he's so fucking cute Well, guys, this week, Gabby and I both have two pretty good stories for you. I am going to do a case that is pretty similar to John Bonet, actually, but happened about 60 years beforehand. So the original John Bonet, yeah, I guess. And then Gabby is going to do an I Survived case today, which yep. we love and I'm excited for. So um, I think we can go ahead and jump right into it. Let me get my notes here off my phone. Mm. I normally take notes on my phone, too. Yeah, I usually bring my laptop, but I just honestly did not feel like carrying on shit today. <laughs> I feel you. I feel you. Okay, so take us with my alcohol here. I'm surprised at how much I like this core seltzer. I know. Well, I'm, you know what? Like, they're okay. Um, but I was actually pleasantly surprised because I, I don't really like Coors beer. Yeah. So. I'm not a beer fan at all. So to mm-hmm. for me to like this flavor is pretty popular, you know? Mm-hmm. Okay, guys, so the case that I'm going to talk to you about today is actually going to be back in 1934. And a lot of you, if you're familiar with the true crime world, have probably heard this story. Um, Gabby, I don't know if you have. Have you ever heard of the Lindbergh kidnapping? You know what? It sounds familiar, but mm-hmm. I don't know anything about it. I might yeah. have just have heard of the name yeah heard it saw it on an episode of forensic files or something yes. yeah it's definitely a crazy story and it's actually still a cold case they never or no let me scratch that i'm sorry they did arrest somebody for this they i don't did. yeah they did i don't know why i was saying that i think the reason that i was saying it was a cold case is to me it feels so similar to john benet that i don't know if the person that was arrested for this was actually guilty for it mm. And that is my opinion. And I went through the spiral of being on Reddit for about a solid three hours. And you know where that takes you. So I don't know. But we're going to go ahead and jump right into it. So a newspaper writer, H.L. Meckin, called this kidnapping and trial the biggest story since the resurrection. Oh, shit. Legal scholars have referred to the trial as one of the trials of the century. And then just a little fun fact that I added in here. I like to know when laws were like established and created and what made them. And this case right here is what actually makes them create um, transporting a kidnapping victim over state lines of federal law, like federal mm-hmm. illegally. So it was not illegal before this. Oh, they could kidnap, go from California to Florida, and there was nothing they could do. Really? Yeah. But if they were to kidnap and stay in California, that would be? Yep. They could do something then. Right. So this is this didn't happen until 1934. So now 2020, 
you kidnap a kid and go to Georgia, you're fucked. Like, yeah. You look at a kid. Right. Yeah, you look at a kid and even think of another state, you are arrested. Like, FBI is most wanted. Literally. (laughs) So, yeah, that is kind of what this case created. That case. This case created that. (laughs) I guess is the best way to describe it. Interesting. Um, This is hard to read off my phone. Okay, so Charles Lindbergh, this is the dad that we're going to be talking about. Charles Lindbergh was an American aviator who rose to international fame in 1927 after becoming the first person to fly solo and nonstop across the Atlantic Ocean. Mm. Yes, so he has a lot of fame for that. He's obviously very rich, kind of like the same, like I was saying. This is like new, like what what was the airplane, the 20s? So like relatively new? Yeah, it was 27. Yeah, it was a monoplane. So yeah, first person to do that obviously makes him super rich. He has a lot of notoriety. He's very Mm -hmm. big up in the world. So Charles has a wife named Anne and they live in Highlands, which is in East Amwell, New Jersey. Um, And about 7.30 p.m. on March 1st, 1932, the Lindbergh's nanny, whose name was Betty Gow, found that their 20-month-year-old son, Charles Lindbergh Jr., was not with his mother, Anne, who had just come out of the bathtub, which already to me, like, here, pause, I'm a nanny. Why are you surprised that the baby's not with his mom if you're the nanny and you're there? Right, exactly. And it's like a newborn. It's not like they just get up and wander. Right, so somebody should have had eyes on this baby at all times. Like, this already for me is a red flag, so... Mm -hmm. Um, so basically she notices that he's not with his mom and she goes and alerts his dad, tells his dad like, Hey, I did not see the baby. So he immediately goes to the baby's room where he finds a ransom note containing bad handwriting and grammar in an envelope on the window seal. So what he does is Charles, he takes a gun and he goes around the outside of the house with the butler, whose name was Ollie. And when they're outside, they find these impressions on the ground under the baby's window um, and pieces of like a designed wooden ladder and a baby's blanket. They find this all outside the window. So Ollie, the butler, calls the Hopewell Police Department and Lindbergh, Charles Lindbergh, contacted his attorney and friend, Henry Breckenridge and the New Jersey State Police. Hopewell Borough Police and New Jersey State Police officers, they conduct an extensive search of the home and the surrounding area. Yeah. So do you think that the, um, like, the ladder and the blanket were, like, set up like that so they could find it? Because that's kind of what it sounds like. Obviously, with the ransom note, they wanted to see that their baby was gone. But, like, the little broken piece of the ladder and leaving the blanket, I feel like they're, like trailing them you know like they're teasing them a little bit yeah no it's almost like that for, it's it's just so weird to me like this case i said was very similar to john benet but it, it really is so you have the ransom note yeah you have stuff that you're finding that is still at your house you know what i'm right. saying like everything they found evidence wise for john benet was at the house so for me it's like it's hard for me to dictate like whether this is just like one big setup and they're trying to play the police or if it's one of those things where like there's actual kidnappers and they're just fucking with them. Right. I have no idea like where right. to go mentally on this. No, I agree. And plus like it should be foolproof. You have the nanny, you have the mom, you have a newborn baby. You know? Like, How do you take your eyes off a 20-month-old? Yeah, exactly. I I can't. I have a little sister who's 6 and I'm with her. I don't take my eyes off her. So yeah. I don't get it. 
Um, so after midnight, a fingerprint expert examines the ransom note and the ladder, and no usable fingerprints or footprints were found, basically leading the experts to conclude that the kidnapper or kidnappers wore gloves and had some type of cloth on the soles of their shoes, which to me is just like super extra. Like, I'm a kidnapper. Oh my God, before I go snatch this baby, let me wrap some cloth around my shoes. Like, nobody's thinking this extensively, I don't feel like. Especially in the 30s. This is 1934. Like, come on, nobody. Yeah. Nobody's that smart. (laughs) Yeah. They're smart enough to maybe clean off their their fingerprints and their footprints or like make it foolproof to where they didn't even walk over there. Right. But they're not going to wrap. Come on. Like, you're talking about two hours worth of preparations. Just go snatch a baby. I don't know. It doesn't make sense to me. So I'm going to read you the handwritten ransom note. And like I said, it has many spelling and grammar errors. Um, So it's a little rough. (laughs) It says, Dear Sir, have $50,000 ready, R-E-D-Y, $25,000 in $20 bills, $15,000 in $10 bills, and $10,000 in $5 bills. After two to four days, we will inform you where to deliver the money. We warn you for making anything public or for notifying the police like the child the child is in good care. Indication for all letters are signature and three holes. And so basically what this guy means by this is I had a picture of the letter on here, but when I emailed it to myself, it didn't email for some reason. Mm-hmm. So at the end of every letter, he had like he had punched two holes and then he had like drawn a circle and like almost like parentheses on the outside of his circles and he was saying that this is his signature so anytime that they receive any kind of documentation from him to look for this specific little fucking dot dot parentheses parentheses shit like Interesting. Right. Smart though, because maybe they can't trace the handwriting, or they can't be like like John Bonet when yeah. they're like write out a note. Right, with her mom. Yeah. Right. Oh, it matches. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's his signature. So at the bottom of the note, like I said, were the two interconnected blue circles surrounding a red circle. And then there was a hole punched through the red circle and two more holes to the left and the right. So this is very intricate. (laughs) Um, Word of the kidnapping spreads pretty quickly and hundreds of people arrive on the estate to try and help search for the boy. But in the meantime, they're destroying any kind of potential foot evidence, footprints, anything. So along with the police, well-connected and well-intentioned people arrived at the Lindbergh estate. And what I mean by this is like uh, military colonels offered their aid. And although only one had law enforcement expertise, Herbert Norman Squarshkopf, superintendent of the New Jersey State Police. The other colonels were Henry Skillman Breckenridge, a Wall Street lawyer, and William J. Donovan, a hero of the First World War, who would later head the Office of Strategic Services. So Lindbergh and these men speculate that the kidnapping was perpetrated by an organized crime figure because, like I said, he was an aviator, the Mm -hmm. first person to do this. He probably has a lot of people that don't like him. He's a pretty popular dude. Or that want his money. Right, exactly. So they thought that the letter was written by somebody who spoke German as their native language, um, and at this time, Charles Lindbergh, the father, uses his influence to control the direction of the investigation. And this is also, pause, this is also kind of what I don't like is like, I told you, I don't know if the person that gets arrested for this is actually the person that did this, but it's because the dad just seems very involved in the investigation from like 
day one. And I'm not saying necessarily that anything's wrong with that, but it doesn't really seem like he was trying to help, but more so dictate how the investigation goes. Yeah. So no, that makes sense. That to like me is kind of like towards a certain direction. Yeah. Like you should be following police in this moment. You tell me what we're going to do to find my son. Yeah, like, I'll tell you what I know. Yeah. But that's about it. Exactly. So that to me was just kind of like another weird thing that I didn't really, mm-hmm. I don't know, red flag. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So what they do is they contact this guy named Mickey Rosner, who was a Broadway follower, and he was rumored to know a lot of mobsters at this time. Mm-hmm. So Rosner turns to two speakeasy owners, and I had to look this up because I didn't know what a speakeasy was. Mm-hmm. Um, so basically back in the 30s, it's like like a comedy club in yeah. 2020. But back in the 30s, they could have just talked or played music or like just kind of like a chill environment where they sell alcohol. Right. I don't know why they just didn't say bar. (laughs) Um, So he turned to these two owners, and their names are Salvatore Spittel and Irving Bitts for help. So Charles Lindbergh quickly endorses these two men and appoints them as his mediators to deal with the mob. Several organized crime figures, notably Al Capone, Mm. Willie Moretti, Joe Adonis, and Abner Zwillman spoke from prison, offering to help the return of the baby in exchange for money or legal favors. Mm. Specifically, Capone offers assistance in return for being released from prison under the pretense that his assistance would be more effective. See, and that's the thing. It's almost, it's a double-edged sword for sure, getting help from mobsters, because one, they're manipulative, they're still criminals, and they're going to do what they do best, and they're going to get what they need out of the situation. 100%. But then also they might actually know some inside scoop, obviously, yeah. because they're, they mobsters. were in the mob, right. and they I, are mobsters. So Yeah, so I think it's like a hard situation, because when your son is missing, obviously you're going to do whatever you can, but like, right. no, I'm totally with you. Like, these guys might just want to get out of prison and they see somebody hurting that they can manipulate. Exactly. They're like, they'll do whatever they can. Let me go ahead and flip this around to my advantage and get what I want out of it. A hundred percent. Okay. So after Capone offers his assistance and says, Hey, let me out of jail. Let me help. The authorities say, nah, (laughs) they're like, absolutely not. This is where we draw. Right. You crazy bastard. (laughs) They're like, absolutely not. (laughs) Um, so the morning after the kidnapping, authorities notify President Herbert Hoover of the crime. And at that time, like I said, kidnapping was classified as a state crime and Mm. the case did not seem to have any grounds for federal involvement at this time. A 20 month old is missing. There's no, it's like, oh, well, you know, know, there's bigger problems in the world. He's in the state somewhere. He's in New Jersey. (laughs) Literally psycho. So, Attorney General William D. Mitchell meets with Hoover and announces that the whole machinery of the Department of Justice would be set in motion to cooperate with the New Jersey authorities. The Bureau Bureau of Investigation, which is later named the FBI, was authorized to investigate the case while the United States Coast Guard, the U.S. Customs Service, the U.S. Immigration Service, and the Washington, D.C. police were told their services might be required as well. Mm. So it's all hands on deck here. Like, come on, let's do this. Yeah. So New Jersey officials announce a $25,000 reward for the return of safe little Lindy, is what he comes to be known as in the newspapers and media and stuff. And the Lindbergh family offers an additional $50,000 reward of their own. So why don't they just pay? What do you mean? Like, why didn't they just pay the ransom? 
I don't know. That's a good question. I think at this point they had already contacted police and in the ransom they told them not to do that. So they're trying to come up with other maybe options Mm -hmm. rather than just paying the ransom. But See, that's kind of like a red flag for me too. Like why carry out this whole investigation and not comply? Maybe it doesn't go your way, but if you get up to the point where there is a ransom and someone from that side meets with you, like why wouldn't you want to do that first? Yeah. Why – go around your ass to get to your elbow exactly if you already know they have your kid and they've already made contact with you like right and they're always like and you know what maybe ransom letters are lies it probably is a lie but why wouldn't you start there yeah at least try yeah a hundred percent seems like they're wasting time exactly so at this time now the total reward for this is seventy five thousand dollars which in today's money (laughs) is one million four hundred and five thousand four hundred and twenty seven dollars shit Yes. So back then, that was obviously a tremendous sum of money. But also, Mm -hmm. don't forget, we're in the 30s. So the Great Depression is going on. That's what I was going to ask. The Great Depression. it's going on while this is happening. While this is happening. So So people are probably freaking. Yes. Like, this is a lot of money. Like, especially during that time when everybody was broke and could barely fucking eat. Like, this is like millionaire overnight type money. Yeah. So on March 6th, a new ransom letter arrives at the mail. Uh, in the mail at the Lindbergh home. The letter was postmarked Mark 4th. Mark, Mark, what the fuck is wrong with me? <laughs> yeah. Mark 4th. Mark, my back. <laughs> March 4th in Brooklyn. And it carried the red and blue marks, his signature, and the ransom had been raised to $70,000 now. Mm. So, so a thir- we're talking like close, like th- over $3 million or close to $3 million? Um, So the ransom note uh, before had was a lot lower than $75,000 or $70,000. This $75,000 was just an award that they came with on their own. Mm-hmm. So I think what probably happened is that the people that did this saw that they had created their own reward and just decided to raise their money so we're still looking at about a million dollars again why go around your ass to get to your elbow you know they're going to be paying attention to what you do (laughs) yeah right save some money hey you know what fuck the seventy five thousand (laughs) dollars i'm asking for 70 like (laughs) that's five percent like um so okay sorry a third ransom note postmarked from brooklyn also included the secret marks arrived in Breckenridge's mail, which is the lawyer for this family. Mm-hmm. So the note says that the Lindbergh, the note told the Lindberghs that John Congdon, this guy named John Congdon, should be the mediator between the Lindberghs and the kidnappers, and requested notification in a newspaper that the third note had been received. Instructions specific uh, specified the size of the box of the money should come in and warn the family not to contact the police again. So this is multiple yeah. times they're telling y'all not to contact the fucking police. Right, and police. what are you like, fucking doing? Hello, 911. Yeah, <laughs> So during this time, this guy, his name is John Congdon. He was a well-known Bronx personality, and he was a retired school teacher. He offers $1,000 if the kidnappers would turn the child over to a Catholic priest, which... 2020, I'm just like, ugh. Like, yeah, yeah, no, they're ugh. probably even worse. Yeah, literally worse. So John received a letter reportedly written by the kidnappers. It authorized, like I said, him to be to their mediator. And Lindbergh, the baby's dad, accepted this letter as genuine. <sighs> which is like, to me, it's weird. How is this genuine? Your fucking kid got snatched. Like, what are you doing? None like, of this. If your kid is gone, how are you not going through all of the scenarios? Like, 
okay, um, he wants a ransom. Do I just contact the police, even though it says we'll hurt your kid if you fucking contact the police? Literally. Do you not, like, stop for a second and think about it? And really think about whether you should contact the fucking police like, or not? Like, they're too willy-nilly, just, okay, okay, yeah. Oh, this is genuine. He yeah. wants to be my mediator for the kidnappers. No, <laughs> you don't trust anyone. Literally you don't nobody. don't trust fucking anyone. And this is why. Yeah. <laughs> So, following the kidnappers' latest instructions, this guy, John, places a classified ad in the New York American Reading, and he titles it, Money is Ready, Hosfi. That's what he names himself. Mm -hmm. John then waits for further instructions from the culprits. So, a meeting between John and a representative of the group that claimed to be the kidnappers was eventually scheduled for late one evening at this place called Woodlawn Cemetery in the Bronx. Mm -hmm. According to John, the man sounded foreign but stayed in the shadows during the conversation, and John was unable to get, like, a pretty good look at this guy's face. Mm -hmm. So the man says that his name is John as well, mm -hmm. which is funny, and he related this story. He was a Scandinavian sailor, part of a gang of three men and two women. The baby was being held on a boat, unharmed, but would only be returned for the ransom. When John Congdon expresses doubt that this other John actually had the baby, he promised some proof the kidnapper would soon return the baby's sleeping suit. The stranger asked Congdon, would I burn if the package were dead? When questioned further, he assured John that the baby was alive. So already right here, like, he's already, come on, like, am, mm -hmm. am I going to get in trouble if the baby's already dead? Well, why are you asking me that if the baby's not dead? Yeah. Like, that's weird, right? So on March 16th, Congdon, John Congdon, receives a toddler's sleeping suit in the mail mm. and a seventh ransom note. After Charles Lindbergh identifies the sleeping suit, John Congdon placed a new... Oh, sorry, I read that wrong. John Congdon places a new ad in the home news, and it says, Money is ready. No cops. No secret service. I come alone like last time. On April 1st, John Congdon received a letter saying it was time for the ransom to be delivered. So the ransom is packaged in like a little wooden box that was custom made in hope that it could be later identified. The ransom money included a number of gold certificates, um, gold certificates which were about to be withdrawn from circulation. And this is actually something that we talk about later in the story. And it was hoped that the, this would draw attention to anyone who was spending them. Mm-hmm. So basically, we'll talk about it later in the story, but they passed this law that you're not allowed to use or hold on to gold certificates. So anybody that is using that as money has to come turn them in. Got it. And like switch them out for money. So they're right. giving it's like these cashing like a money order. Right. Or like cashing a check. Exactly. So they're giving these guy, this guy, this certificate knowing, knowing he can't do anything with it. Right. Smart. Knowing that the exchange is coming up and there's a certain day that this has to be exchanged by. Or you lose the money. Exactly. Smart. Right. For 1934, very yeah. smart. Yeah. That's pretty good. So the bills were not marked, but their serial numbers were recorded. On April 2nd, John was given a note by a mediator, an unknown cab driver. John met the other John and told him that they had been able to raise only $50,000. The man accepts the money, and he gives John a note saying that the child was in the care of two innocent women. And it's like, no, fuck you. Give me the baby. Yeah. Give me the fucking baby. We're not doing this. Yeah. Like, we've yeah. met in person too many times. You're obviously not going to shoot me. Yeah. What are you going to do? Just let him walk away? Yeah. Fuck you. I would have beat him in the head with be that like, box. Ugh. Like, yeah. yeah. What the fuck? Literally. 
So on May 12th, delivery truck driver Orville Wilson and his assistant William Allen pulled to the side of the road about four and a half miles south of the Lindbergh family home. Mm-hmm. So basically Orville, or not Orville, William goes over to the side of the road to pee and while he's peeing, he discovers the body of a toddler. <gasps> Which is like, imagine that. You're just trying to take a piss. You've had a long fucking day at work. You're ready to be done with this nine to five. Taking your last piss of the day. Bam. Literally what happened. Terrible. So the skull was badly fractured and the body was already decomposed. Oh, so they had killed him a while back. Yeah. The baby's been dead. And already being chewed on by animals (gasps) is literally a detail that it says. Um, and there were indications of an attempt at a hasty burial. So they basically just dumped this baby. They were like, fuck it. Like, we got to do this quick. Oh, my God. And they got away with $50,000. Mm-hmm. Yep. So Gao, who is the family nanny, identifies the baby as the missing infant. Um, and she does this because his toes kind of overlapped. Um, so she notices his overlapping toes on his right foot. And then he had a shirt on that she had actually made for him when they found him it appeared the child had been killed by a blow to the head and the dad insists on cremation what okay so isn't this fishy to me because the dad never gets in trouble for this right he never any kind of fishy behavior like this to me is fishy why are you insisting let them investigate like you've been dealing with this for how long now and Mm. you won't let them investigate yeah no are you kidding me? red flag completely like no autopsy or anything nope cremation right away right away <gasps> so in june 1932 officials began to basically suspect that the crime that had been perpetrated was somebody that the Lindberghs knew very closely well yeah okay that's a great observation <laughs> yeah <laughs> like, right like they on. came into your house and took your kid and they knew where to nail the ransom right. yeah okay that's been they known knew, they knew who your lawyer was <laughs> like yeah. what i'm confused um so suspicions fall upon this lady and her name is violet sharp and violet sharp was a british household servant at the Lindbergh home who had given contrad um She kind of contradicted herself a little bit with information when talking to the police Mm -hmm. regarding her whereabouts on the night of the kidnapping. It was reported that she was super nervous and suspicious acting when she was questioned. And so actually on June 10th, 1932, she commits suicide (gasps) by ingesting a silver polish that contained cyanide just before being questioned for the fourth time. But after she kills herself, they're able to verify her alibi and she wasn't lying, so the police actually get reprimanded for this and criticized for basically being too hard on her because mm-hmm. she killed herself, Fair ultimately. Enough. Yeah. Maybe they're trying to... It does kind of seem like a situation, like, once you get to this part and you're like, okay, well, no body, technically. Like, we have no idea. It's like, how can we just get someone to confess? Exactly. How can we take this circumstantial evidence that we have and literally create a story with it? And, you know, this is the same thing that we see with, like, honestly a lot of the cases that yeah. still happen today like with black men black women they're trying to create a story around a specific person and they right. don't care who it is exactly and it's mainly because a lot of the times the the police department and the investigators they're getting a lot of heat 
especially if it comes to a baby oh 100 a child that's missing and you can't tell me who took the baby and murdered the baby yeah so yeah maybe they were feeling a little bit of pressure yeah that sucks for her they're being terrorized mentally over this case so they're terrorizing other people to try and fix the case and right. it's like it doesn't work yeah, <laughs> like, it doesn't work like that. So John Congdon was also questioned by police at this time, and his house was searched, but nothing suggestive was found. And Charles Lindbergh stood by John the entire time. Mm-hmm. So after the discovery of the body, John remains unofficially involved in the case. To the public, he had become a suspect, and in some circles, his name was completely slandered. Like, some people had no fucking respect for him. They thought yeah. he was in on it somehow. Like, somebody was lying somewhere. Mm-hmm. Which is true. But... Yeah. I mean, you don't know. It's yeah. conspiracies all over, you know? Mm-hmm. So for the next two years, he visited police department and um, police departments, and he pledged and made it, like, a life mission to help find this cemetery john that Mm -hmm. he had met with Mm -hmm. so john's actions regarding the case were pretty weird in a sense so just some examples on one occasion when he was riding a city bus john claimed that he saw a suspect on the street and announcing his secret identity orders the bus to stop the startled bus driver obviously complies and john darts off the bus although his target like had already eluded him basically Mm -hmm. so he just announced basically like hey this is me like let me off the bus i need to catch this guy when he should not have done that at all like so um his actions were also criticized as kind of um exploitive in a bit because he agreed to appear in an act like a play regarding the kidnapping mm. which is yeah so weird there's like, always one of those like john benet's family yes, dude yes. like getting like all the air time and the mm-hmm. money and the the books the fun yeah the books like come on yeah that's what i'm saying that's why it reminds me so much of john benet like but mm-hmm. just 60 years beforehand like yeah, no, this seriously. is this is where they Someone's got the idea capitalize on it exactly got to benefit from it exactly Um, So he agrees to appear in that play regarding the kidnapping, and then Liberty Magazine publishes a serialized account of John's involvement in the Lindbergh kidnapping under the title Hospi Tells All. So this is something else he gets, like, you know, like an article. (laughs) So the investigators who were working on the case were soon at a standstill. There were no developments and little evidence of any sort. So police turned their attention to trying to track the money now. Yeah, yeah, because they do have 50,000. Yep, in the serial numbers and stuff like that. So um, a pamphlet was prepared with the serial numbers on their ransom bills, and 250,000 copies were distributed to businesses, mainly in New York City. Hmm. So the weird thing is a few of the ransom bills appeared kind of in scattered locations, which is kind of, like, weird because it's, like, Okay, so were there multiple people? Or there had to have been. Yeah, there or is this being been. done purposely? It's it's so confusing. Right. Um, so places like Chicago and Minneapolis, which is, you know, pretty far from there. Yeah, not New Jersey. Right. But those spending bills are actually never found. The bills aren't. So by this is where I was telling you where they switched the gold coins out. So by a presidential order, and I gave the order number here, it's Executive Order 6102. It is signed April 5th, 1933 by U.S. President Franklin D. Roosevelt. Mm. And basically it's forbidding the hoarding of gold coin and gold certificates within the United States. So all these gold certificates had to be exchanged for bills by May 1st, 1933. They were giving them a deadline. If not, your fucking money's gone. Like, and even if you hold on to it, it was still legal to hold on to them. Right. So legally, you had to go trade them in. If you got caught with them, it was a crime. Mm-hmm. 
So, a few days before the deadline, a man brings in $2,980 to a Manhattan bank for exchange. It was later realized that the bills were for the ransom. He had given his name as J.J. Faulkner of 537 West, 149th Street. No one named Faulkner lived at that address. <laughs> um, There's a lady named Jane Faulkner who lived there for 20 years, and she denied involvement, right. which is weird. So you guys just picked a random house and figured out who lived there, so you're watching them like you were watching the Lindberghs. I don't right. know. This case is so, like, it has me go so many different ways. Like, so strange. So strange. It could just be, like, a straight-up mastermind behind it all. Yeah, like the mob or some shit like that. Yeah. Germans, yeah. It's so crazy. Um so during a 30-month period, a number of the ransom bills were spent throughout New York City, and the detectives realized that many of the bills were being spent along the route of the Lexington Avenue subway, which connected the Bronx with the east side of Manhattan, including the German-Austrian neighborhood of Yorkville. Mm. So they already think it's somebody German, and now they're following this trail that's leading them to a majority of German people in this city. Right. So they really think they've got something here. <laughs> <laughs> they, they really Come have got on, it. Dude. Jesus fucking Christ. Um, so on September 18th, 1934, a Manhattan bank teller notices a gold certificate from the ransom. A New York pl- a New York license plate number penciled in the bill's margin allowed it to be traced to a nearby gas station. The station manor- manager had written down the license plate number because his customer was acting suspicious and kind of like a counterfeiter (laughs) that's literally what it says counterfeiter (laughs) um the license plate belonged to a sedan owned by a guy named richard hoffman of 1279 east 22nd street in the bronx an immigrant with a criminal record in germany Okay. When Hoffman was arrested, he was carrying a single $20 gold certificate and over $14,000 of the ransom money was found in his garage. <sighs> I don't know about that. It's just, you. this is a case where you seriously just have to get in the mind of a criminal, a criminal mastermind, yeah. and think about, like, okay, I have a literal paper trail, like, who am I going to pin this on? Exactly. Situation. Am I going to pin it on my old next door neighbor or am I going to pin it on this guy who has a criminal record? Exactly. And that's what's confusing to me is like, okay, so he has a criminal record. So normal people are automatically going to assume like, hell yeah, he fucking did it. But like, yeah. and don't get me wrong. If he did 100%, he deserves what he got. Right. But just looking at all the red flags that we've seen from charles Lindbergh and the nanny and different people in this situation it's like how do we know that this isn't just a big setup and this is just their fall guy which is very possible like, like if, we've seen an mlk jfk yes. like yes and especially back then and i mean as a criminal a smart criminal who if you didn't do this you're you walked away with no consequences and you'll never be found, most likely. Exactly. You have to go through the whole situation. Okay, if, if I'm going to have a paper trail. I know that. I'm obviously not going to be spending this money in my area unless someone else is spending it. Exactly. It's like, there's al- just so many different things that you have to look at. Yeah. And you have to be, like, one step ahead of the police the whole time yes. you're doing it. And that, to me, like, that's why it just rubs me the wrong way where it says, like, Charles Lindbergh, like, directed the investigation okay so why are you doing that 
are you trying to direct them away from what you're trying to cover up last time i checked you were not a police officer or a detective you're a fucking pilot so why are you taking control of this whole situation and not leaving it to the professionals exactly that's what i don't like no some things just don't add up like (laughs) so hoffman was arrested and interrogated and beaten at least once throughout that following day and night so he states that the money and the other items had been left with him by his friend and former business partner, Isidore Fish. And Fish had died on March 29, 1934, shortly after returning to Germany. So Hoffman states that he learned only after Fish's death that the shoebox that was left with him contained a big amount of money. <laughs> Interesting. He said he kept the money because he claimed it was owed to him from a business deal that him and Fish had made previously. So Hoffman consistently denied any connection to the crime or knowledge or any connection to the crime or knowledge that the money in his house was from the ransom. When the police search his house, they find a considerable amount of additional evidence that was linked to the crime. Mm -hmm. One item was a notebook that contained a sketch of the construction of a ladder that was similar to the one that had been found at the Lindbergh home in March 1932. Interesting. John Congdon's telephone number, along with his address, were discovered written on a closet in the wall. A key piece of evidence, a section of wood, was discovered in the attic of the home. After being examined by an expert, it was determined to be an exact match to the wood used in the construction of the ladder. Hmm. So Hoffman was indicted in the Bronx on September 24, 1934, for exhorting the $50,000 from Charles Lindbergh. And two weeks later, on October 8th, Hoffman was indicted in New Jersey for the murder of Charles Lindbergh Jr. Two days later, he surrendered to the New Jersey authorities by New York Governor Herbert Lehman to face, direct, to face charges directly related to the kidnapping and murder of the child. And Hoffman was moved to Hunterdon County Jail in Flemington, New Jersey on October 19th. And Yep, so he's indicted, arrested, and we are about to end right here. Oh, my God. Yep. So Hoffman's charged with capital murder. The trial is held um, in New Jersey and was soon dubbed, like I said, the trial of the century. Reporters swarmed the town, and every hotel room was booked, and Judge Thomas Whitaker Trenchard presided over the trial. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, So in exchange for his rights to publish Hoffman's story in their newspaper, Edward J. Riley was hired by the New York Daily Mirror to serve as Hoffman's attorney. David T. Willens, attorney general of New York or New Jersey, led the prosecution. Mm. So evidence against Hoffman included $20,000 of ransom money found in his garage and testimony alleging that his handwriting and spelling were very similar to the ransom notes. Eight handwriting experts, including Albert S. Orsborn, pointed out similarities between the ransom notes and Hoffman's writing specimens. The defense called an expert to basically rebuke this evidence while two others declined to testify. Mm. So when the police are basically asking him how he knows about this and why he has his evidence and why he has, you know, John Condon's phone number written on a closet in his wall, this is what he says. He says, I must have read it in the paper about the story. I was a little bit interested and kept a little record of it. And maybe I was just on the closet and was reading the paper and put down the address. I can't give you any explanation about why I have his phone number. 
So it's like, I don't know. It's just for me, it's like, this looks really bad, right? But I also have just seen so many cases where they purposely make somebody look bad. Like, they set this up to a T. It's just fishy enough to suspect that maybe the person who was reprimanded for this didn't do it. Yeah. It's just fishy enough. Exactly. Um, So, like I said, they found a sketch of the ladder that was outside the house that night. And when they asked him about this, Hoffman says that this picture and other sketches were from the work of a child. So, despite not having an obvious source of earned income, Hoffman had bought his wife a $400 radio, which is over $7,700 today, and sent his wife on a trip to Germany. Mm. Hoffman was identified as the man to whom the ransom money was delivered. Other witnesses testified that it was Hoffman who had spent some of the Lindbergh gold certificates that he had been seen in the area of the estate on the day of the kidnapping and that he had been absent from work on the day of the ransom payment and had quit his job two days later. Hoffman never sought another job afterward, yet continued to live pretty comfortably. Mm -hmm. I know. (laughs) So when the prosecution rests its case, the defense opens with a um, a lengthy examination of Hoffman. In his testimony, Hoffman denied being guilty, insisting that the box of gold certificates had been left by his friend, Isidore Fish. Um, Hoffman said that he had found one day that he had one day found the shoebox left behind by Fish, which he had stored on top of his kitchen broom closet, and then he just later discovered that there was almost forty thousand dollars in there. Mm. Hoffman said that because Fish had owed him about seventy five hundred dollars in business funds. He kept the money for himself and had lived on it since 1934. Mm. So the defense calls his wife to the stand. (laughs) I love this. To corroborate this whole story. And on cross-examination, she admitted that while she hung her apron every day on a higher hook than the top shelf where the box was, she'd never remember seeing any box there. Mm Mm-hmm. So later witnesses testified that Fish could not have been at the crime of the scene and that he had no money for medical treatments when he died of tuberculosis. Fish's landlady testified that he could barely afford the $3.50 weekly rent of his room. So there's no way this could be this guy's money. Like, right, <laughs> right. God, three fifty for rent. Yeah, Sorry. can you imagine, bro? <sighs> I think... Holy shit. I, don't, I pay obviously way more than that. <laughs> like, uh, three fifty an hour That's like, like yeah. two things off the dollar menu two or three things off the dollar menu at mcdonald's literally what rent. the fuck so um in his closing summation riley argued that the evidence against hoffman was entirely circumstantial because no reliable witness had placed hoffman at the crime of the scene nor were his fingerprints found on the ladder on the ransom notes or anywhere in the nursery which is just like this is part of the reason that i don't really know if he was behind this because I get cleaning your fingerprints off, right? Wiping them off the ladder, making sure there's no footprints. But if you're in a baby's room, there is no way that you're not going to leave a hair follicle, Mm -hmm. a fingerprint on the crib. Like, I don't know. To me, I just can't justify there not being one single fingerprint from this man. Not one. And you're going to walk down the ladder with a baby in your hand? Right. And what do it seamlessly with no hands and like, they, I'm confused. and do you remember how i said um in the beginning how like a bunch of people came over to help like look for the baby mm-hmm. they found fingerprints from every single one of those people when they ran fingerprint scans right of course like yeah. but not this guy i'm confused yeah <laughs> that's nuts yeah it's so nuts so um we're just gonna finish up here with his conviction and what happens hoffman was convicted and immediately sentenced to death 
That's what I, that's what I was afraid of. Yep. And that's what I, ugh. His attorneys appealed to the New Jersey Court of Errors and Appeals, which at the time was the state's highest court. The appeal was argued on June 29th, 1935. Um, In late January 1936, while declaring that he had no position on the guilt or innocence of Hoffman, this other guy named Harold J. Hoffman, who was the New Jersey governor, he cited evidence that the crime was not a one-person job, which is probably true. Oh, absolutely. And directed Skorzhikov <laughs> to continue a thorough and impartial investigation and efforts to bring all parties to justice. So it became, a, it became known among the press that on March 27th, Hoffman was considering a second um, appeal on Hoffman's death. We have a Hoffman and a Hoffman. It's like very similar, yeah. So basically the governor is trying to get a second appeal for this guy's death and was seeking opinions about whether the governor had the right to even do this or not. Right. So on March 30th, 1936, Hauptman's second and final appeal asking for clemency from the New Jersey boards of pardons was denied. Yep. Hoffman later announced that his decision would be the final legal action in the case and that he would not grant another appeal. Um, okay, so now we're going to get to the execution. Okay. So oh Hoffman turns down a large offer from a Hearst newspaper. They basically offer him to confess, and they'll commute his death sentence to a life sentence. He says, fuck that. Whoa. Yeah, so that to me even is like, you either don't care about your life and you're just ready for it to be over, or two, you are very dead set on saying, I'm never confessing to that. I don't care if I have to die. That's true. That's very true. Just be like, you know what? I will die, but I will not die for this. Yeah, I will die 100%. And I'm not going to rot in prison for the rest of my life for something I didn't do. I'd, I would rather die. Exactly. That's what I'm saying. So it's like, hmm. So he refuses to confess, and um, obviously they don't change this over to a life sentence and he is electrocuted on april 3rd 1936 after his death some reporters and independent investigators came up with numerous questions about the way the investigation had been handled mm-hmm. um including tampering and planting evidence that is literally on this fucking wikipedia page that's why i don't think this guy did it like yeah, who planted no. this evidence that's very true. Um, twice in the 1980s, Anne Hauptman sued the state of New Jersey for the unjust execution of her husband. The suits were dismissed on unknown grounds, and mm. she continued to fight to clear his name until her death at age 95 in 1994. Holy, holy shit. Yeah, and that is the story of the Lindbergh kidnapping. That's crazy. Bro, but... What do you think happened? Do you think this guy did it? Tell me. God, I don't know. I'm kind of torn. Like, I really am 50-50, and I don't think that you should feel that way at all when it comes to ruling on a case. I think you should 100% know. Reason will be on doubt. I couldn't tell you. Yeah. I really couldn't tell you. I think it is too seamless for one person. I can say that. I can honestly say I don't think he was acting alone, whoever it was. Um. But yeah, I think the redirection of the case and the cremating of the body and like as a parent who just lost their toddler, I want to know who fucking killed my toddler. End of story. I will do anything. I'll do anything to know. I'm not throwing away any evidence or any chance of any evidence. Right. So that's fishy to me. Um, But there's a lot of things that line up 
for the actual defendant mm-hmm. that that makes sense 100 I mean, percent. a lot of it could have been pinned on him yes. yeah but fishy enough it's so hard to know like yeah and that's the thing about this case that drives me crazy is like you know even though they did execute this guy like in my mind like it's still a cold case because it's like i just don't know like I feel like there is so much circumstantial evidence in every perspective of this case that they probably should have investigated a little bit more before they just executed this dude. Like, that's the <laughs> thing. And, like, if you listen to true crime, I honestly – and that's the thing. I don't – like, I'm not super into true crime, but this is fishy to me. Yeah. This isn't how a normal case goes. It does not make sense. You know? Yeah. So, Definitely. Very John Bonet, though, right? Very John Bonet. Just – infuriating like open your eyes yeah look who's around you like start suspecting literally who's trying to lead the case you yeah know what i mean yeah like who's trying to dictate how the entire investigation goes like yeah, like the defendant and person who really was responsible for this could just be hiding in plain sight yeah they could be right next to you like that show on hulu hiding in plain sight <laughs> one of the right. best shows yeah <laughs> But no, so very nuts. John Bonet, and like I actually had that thought that it was very John Bonet, and then when I got on Reddit and I was diving in, I saw a bunch of people like saying that, and I was yeah. like, "Bro, I fucking know, like I get it." <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I think that this is one of those cases that um, I, I might stay up late over trying to figure out. Oh, <laughs> dude, I know that's gonna be like stuck in my head, literally thinking about it the whole time. Tragic. Tragic. Well, yeah, that was my case. Thanks. That was good. Thank uh, you. Yeah, I did, and I survived. Now, I don't think, obviously, there's an I Survived show. I'm sure everyone who listens to this knows that, Mm -hmm. but I don't think this was on here. Um, I actually did this research (laughs) the same day I did the MLK research, so this was, like, months ago. Mm -hmm. Um, But I remember using Wikipedia, I remember using Murderpedia, and I remember using, like, a local article. Okay. Okay. So, this is the I Survived story of Crystal Searles. Ooh. Okay, so 19, in 1999, 10-year-old Crystal and her younger sister, um, I think it's pronounced Marquet, were staying with friends in Del Rio, Texas, while they were waiting for the rest of their family to move from Kansas. Oh, okay. So they were just staying with friends. So I'll give you a little background on Crystal and her family first. Um, so Crystal didn't have the best home life growing up. Her parents, Mark and Pam, had started using drugs pretty much up until this incident. Oh, for a while um and the drugs obviously had taken over and they were starting to get into little bits of trouble here and there with the law i'm not really sure what drugs they were doing i think so she files for divorce and she leaves she leaves mark who was still on drugs crystal's dad and she leaves him with crystal and her sister oh so she doesn't take the kids right while she gets clean oh which is kind of selfish. Yeah. Your daughters are just going to go through whatever until then. Right. Pretty much. She was just like, I have to do this for me. Yeah. <laughs> I need it's to like, fuck, fuck my kids. Yeah. yeah. No, exactly. Um, so this kind of resulted in Crystal becoming a motherly figure because obviously her dad's still on drugs. Mm-hmm. Her mom's gone and she has siblings to take care of. Um, and Crystal actually says in an interview, like during this time, her dad would pretty much just sleep for days at a time. Mm. And she was left to care for her little sister's. So, changing diapers. And mind you, she's like 8 to 10 years old. Yeah. Young, young. Yeah. So, she's changing the diapers. She's feeding them. She's putting them to sleep. She's making sure. And then also making sure that she's taken care of. Yeah. 
Um, and then Crystal also says that she was called like the stinky kid in class because she rarely had time to shower and she obviously never wore matching clothes because oh she's God. doing this herself. Aww. Just like so sad. This poor little girl. I know. Okay, so then Pam. Pam gets clean and she decides she's going to take the girls with her finally. Her dad, Mark, was still using and dealing and dealing drugs at this point. Oh, no, now he's progressed. Right, and he actually ended up going to jail and was in jail at the time of this incident. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Okay. Fucking Mark. So that's a little background on Crystal and her family. So, Crystal and her sister are with Pam while her dad is in jail. Okay. So now we're going to get to the incident. Okay. Oh, here we go. Dun dun dun. <laughs> December <laughs> 31st 1999 it's new year's eve uh crystal and her sister are in del rio texas and they're staying with crystal's friend kayleen joe harris and her family van enters katie's on the bottom so we can call kayleen katie because that's what she goes by okay um so katie and her family lived out in the middle of nowhere in the desert and there wasn't really a lot of neighbors close to them you're talking like their closest neighbor is like a mile away oh yeah, so just kind of out in the sticks. Out in the country. Out in the country. Whoop, whoop. Okay, so Katie, who's 13, it's New Year's Eve. Her and Crystal are sharing the same the, their room. I'm pretty sure Katie has bunk beds. Um, and they were sleeping. Uh, so Katie was on the bottom bunk, and Crystal was on the top bunk. Then a man enters. <gasps> um, the man entered the room with a knife and stood over the bed. I think he entered through the window. I'm not sure, though. Crystal's on the top. The man grabs Katie, slices off Katie's shorts and underwear, proceeds to sexually assault her. Mm. She's 13. So Katie, at one point, um, she gets free from this guy, and she starts screaming, which Mm -hmm. obviously wakes Crystal up. So the man turns the light on, and he moves towards Katie. He grabs her, slices her throat twice. (gasps) She dies. Katie drops to the floor, and he proceeds to stab her 16 more times. Her parents didn't hear her screaming? Nope. Oh, we're getting to it. Gosh. We're getting to it, girl. We're getting to it. Okay, so at this point, Crystal is obviously wide awake and fully aware of what's <laughs> I would hope on. so. Yeah. <laughs> no, she's just like, she wakes up and sees her friend being stabbed 16 right. times she's and like, lays back down. What did I miss? Yeah. <laughs> Why is the room sprinkled in red? <laughs> right, yeah. So she's fully aware of what's going on. Um, so her f- fight or flight kind of kicks in and she places her hand over her mouth to try and tries to lay as flat as possible under the covers so the attacker won't see her because remember she's on the top bunk yeah and katie was on the bottom so the attacker walks towards the door pauses he walks back to the bunk and he stands there for a second and he rips crystal from the top bunk. um so crystal begins freaking out she begs him and says she won't say anything and she'll be quiet if he just lets her go so then he proceeds to slit crystal's throat ear to ear oh and exits the bedroom oh my gosh so two little girls crystal age 10 just got her throat slit and her friend katie throat slit twice stabbed 16 times and sexually assaulted so crystal then obviously she's in shock but she's still aware of what's going on so she tries to she just kind of plays dead for a little bit because she wasn't sure if he was going to come back after seeing what happened to her friend um so after a while he leaves um and she forces herself up she forces herself up and she puts her hand on her neck and it's just pouring blood at this point just like she's losing so much blood and she starts to crawl towards katie oh my gosh this balling ass 10 year old little girl dude it's nuts so 
she gets to Katie and Katie's still alive. <gasps> she's obviously also losing a lot of blood and she's just making these like gurgling noises. Yeah, yeah. Like she was trying to speak, but her throat had also been slit. Yeah, blood. And she'd been stabbed repeatedly. Um, so Crystal opens her mouth so she can tell Katie it would be okay and she realizes she can't speak. Nothing mm. comes out. The man is in the process of slitting her throat. Uh, the man in the process of slitting her throat had actually cut through her windpipe and nicked her vocal cord. Oh my god! So this is deep. It is a deep, one and done cut. It wasn't just a little scratch across the neck. No, no, ear to ear. Ugh. Um. So she, since she can't speak, she just kind of lays there and she rubs Katie's back mm. um, to try and comfort her, and eventually. Katie stops breathing. Thirteen-year-old Katie. Mm. Rest in peace, so, Katie. So, yeah. So then, Crystal lays there for a little bit, realizing that Katie's family is in the house, and she can't just stay there, or she's gonna die. Mm-hmm. Um, so she kind of assumes everyone in the house had been killed at this point, and she just bolts for the door, hands still on neck, still gushing blood. She just bolts. Mm. She then proceeds to run co- a quarter of a mile with her throat slit. Until she reaches another house. And this is in the middle of the night. Yeah. This is New Year's Eve. So she gets to this house. And the owner of the house, um, his name is Herb. <laughs> Herb. Herb Betts. <laughs> Herb Betts sees her, like, running towards his house, covered in blood. He obviously calls 911. He's probably fucking terrified. <laughs> I would be shitting myself. Me dude. too. And they live in the sticks. Like, imagine just seeing yeah. this bloody child running towards yeah, you. Yeah, on of New the night. Year's Eve. Yeah. I don't even understand, like, how he's outside at this Yeah, time. yeah. Smoking a cigarette. Like, <laughs> <laughs> smokes 10 more after Yeah, that. literally gets a whole bag. Yeah. Um, okay, so he calls 911, and while they're waiting for the police in the ambulance, Crystal writes out three sentences on a piece of paper. And you can actually look up the piece of paper. Soaked in blood. Oh. Like, it's crazy she writes the harrises are hurt tell them to hurry and will i live yeah oh will i live i know (gasps) this 10 year old girl crazy (laughs) it's so crazy okay so herb obviously comforts her and tells her everything will be all right and he later gets interviewed and he said that he did not believe for one second that she was going to make it. Oh, my goodness. He thought that she would die on his kitchen floor. Oh, I have chill bumps. Yeah. <laughs> nuts. Okay, so then the ambulance arrives, the police arrives, medical responders took Crystal to a hospital in Del Rio. She was then life-flighted to a hospital in San Antonio for surgery to repair her severed windpipe. At the Harris home, um, Katie was dead. No one else was harmed, and nothing was missing from the home except for the two window screens. So he did come through the window. So he literally just came in, literally to, to sexually assault and kill someone. To kill. Um, so from her hospital bed, Crystal, she makes it through the surgery. Wow. She survives. Um, she used a pen and paper to write out a description of Katie's killer, and a police um, sketch artist was able to make a sketch from her description. Meanwhile, Teddy Harris, Pam Searles, and Doug Lurker. So Pam is um, Crystal's mom. Terry Harris, I don't know if that was the mom or the dad of Katie. Mm -hmm. um, And Doug Lurker, which I think was Pam's brother, maybe. Um, They obviously heard about the crime while on the road to Kansas. And 
they turned around and hurried back to Texas. Yeah. Because she, Pam had just dropped the kids off. Yeah. And then was heading back to move. So they just turned it right yeah, around. Yeah, they said, flip this bitch around. <laughs> yeah. Right. So, yeah, Crystal makes it. She makes it through surgery. Um, she can give a description of the killer to a police sketch artist. The sketch is released to the public, and a suspect is named and arrested. Oh, good. The suspect is 34-year-old Tommy Lynn Sells. Um, so Tommy ends up going to trial and pleading not guilty. He did not admit to killing Katie, but did admit to attacking Crystal. What? Oh, Tommy. This is the connection. This is quite a connection. So a little background on Tommy. He does have a nickname, which you might recognize, um, the Coast to Coast or Cross Country Killer. Mm. So Tommy was an American serial killer that has been linked to 22 other murders, but claims to have killed more than 70 people. I've never heard of him. Yeah, you can look him up and do some research on him. If you're, like, really into serial killers, you might know something about him. But, yeah, so... Katie's murder and Crystal's attack was linked to an actual serial killer. That is so crazy. Yeah, so in September of 2000, he was actually convicted of another murder and sentenced to death. Mm. During his time on death row, Sells confessed that on October 13th, 1997, he broke into a home, took a knife from a butcher block in the kitchen, and stabbed a little boy to death and, um, and scuffled with the woman. Those details... Um, corroborated the account of Julie Ray Harper, who was initially convicted for the murder of her son and then acquitted in 2006. <gasps> so they charged the mom for that they murder. They charged the mom for the murder <gasps> of that little boy, but wow. Tommy later admitted to it. Wow. So she gets out in 2006. Oh, my God. I've literally never heard this. So Crazy this stuff. Crazy, crazy, wow. crazy stuff. That poor mom. I know. Like, you lost your little boy, and then you got arrested for it, like, I'd probably kill myself. That's like, insane. I'm not even I'd kidding. fucking livid. <laughs> My mental stability would be completely out the window at that point. Like, so there's no bringing it back. <laughs> it's so crazy. Okay, so fast forward January 3rd, 2014. Uh, Del Rio judge set Cell's execution date for April 3rd, 2014. Um, Cell's death sentence was carried out at the Texas State Penitentiary in Huntsville. When asked if he would like to make a final statement, Sells replied, no. <laughs> <laughs> that was his final statement, no. Yep. Yeah. No, I'm good. Um, he replied, no, as a lethal dose of pentobarbital was administered. He took a few deep breaths, closed his eyes, and began to snore. Less than a minute later, he stopped moving. Mm. 13 minutes later, at 6.27 p.m., he was pronounced dead, and Crystal Surges and members of both the Harris and Perez families attended his execution. Wow. So she must have been like 25 at this point because she was 10 when that happened and he died in 14? 2014? Yep, 2014. Yeah, so she, she was, was like 10. 24. Right, going into wow. the 2000. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? That is so wild. So, yeah, since the incident, Crystal and her sisters obviously have become extremely close. Her dad was released from jail and he's clean now. Um, she went on to graduate high school, and I'm assuming she lives a pretty normal life. I honestly could not find much on her afterwards. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, that was the I Survived story of Crystal Searles. Wow, that's crazy. What a story to be able to say that you survived a serial killer. Seriously. Like, not only fuck? did you survive a, a serial killer, but you survived a serial killer 
at 10 years old, your throat was slit. After watching your friend die. Right. Like, bro, this is literally like, if this happened to us at like 12 and 10, like that's literally terrifying. It's so crazy. And it's just like crazy to think about people who go through that and can go on and live a normal life. Yeah. How do you do that? And like not be traumatized every day. At 10 years old, like you, you are fully aware of what's going on. A hundred percent. You know, so she's a fighter, dude. I'm so traumatized when my dad yelled at me when I was seven. I like, know. <laughs> I know. Wow, that's an incredible story. I'll definitely have to look so into that crazy. serial killer, yeah, too. Yeah, it's definitely a short story, but there's so much, yeah. like, investigative stuff in it. And, like, especially when you start linking Tommy to this and then to all of the other murders that he's been linked to or that he's, con- like, confessed to having a part in. Yeah. It's just... It's nuts. It's literally a fucking web. <laughs> like, the I Survived stories are so good. They're so good. How? Literally how? How do you survive? Like, Do you watch the show? I have... So, I, I have seen the show before, but mainly... Like, I've listened to all of the I Survived stories that they cover on My Favorite Murder. Mm-hmm. I've listened to all of them. So good. Amazing. Just insane, dude. The strength and, like the constant like adrenaline that you would have to have to like keep yourself going throughout that entire situation like and like how do you think like that you know at 10 at 10 years old with your you just watched your friend get murdered and you are on your way to dying yeah and you're thinking let me write this note out let me go run a quarter of a mile in the dark yeah to to find somebody else wow that's crazy I wonder what would have happened if she would have just, like, went and, like, woke Katie's parents up. That's what I'm saying. I'm kind of curious, too. Um, it's hard to say. I think I would probably think, like, Crystal, just assuming that Everybody's the rest of the dead. family's dead. And you don't um, want to see that, so you're just like, fuck, let right, me get out of here. and you don't want to take the chance. Either. Yeah, that's crazy. But even then, it's, like, at 10 years old, like, something traumatizing happens to you. Like, you want an adult. You want a parent. Like, that's yeah. who you're going to want so it's hard even being able to take a step back and being like no i have to help myself or i'm gonna die yeah like, how do you think like that as a kid? i'm 24 and i call my mom every time i'm sick <laughs> like yeah I know. like i know i'm like please help me yeah it's just so crazy it's nuts so crazy that was definitely a good story i'm, I'm so glad you did I that i know dude and like imagine being her dad in jail just getting that call like hey your daughter's um throat was slipped from ear to ear right just crazy. that right there would make you want to sober the fuck up like and i think she's actually pretty close with her dad now yeah good i'm glad that he got clean and that they yeah. seem like they have like a normal that's a healthy family right i am sure it would be like right. it's like okay maybe i gotta step up <laughs> right maybe i need to be there for my daughter like right well guys thank you for tuning in today i am sorry about the break again hopefully um we are able to be a little more consistent as we close out this year mm-hmm. and start a new one I hope everybody is still washing their hands. I hope everybody's still being safe and wearing their mask. Socially distancing. Right. I know you Southerners down there like to think the mask is optional. It's fucking not. Right. It's not. Like, you know, going to the bar seems appealing, but let me just save you the money and the time and possibly a life. Right. And just tell you to fucking stay inside. Just stay. Go over to the fucking Winn-Dixie and get some alcohol and go watch TV on your couch. Go watch Game of Thrones. Like, (laughs) anything. 
Um, thank you guys again for listening. Please make sure that you follow our Instagram at Suspect Podcasts. If you have any interesting stories or cases that you'd like us to cover or talk about, you can send those over to Suspect <laughs> Suspect Podcast One at gmail.com and we'll definitely put your story on here and talk about it. Um, we are doing our giveaway. It was supposed to be this episode, but because Hannah has not been with us, it is going to be on episode 11. We already have the design. We have the product ready. We will just announce a winner on our next episode, which should be sometime next week. So again, thank you guys for listening. We love you guys more than you know. Please stay safe. Please, Please just go outside and get some fresh air before <laughs> you start thinking irrationally. Do some fucking <laughs> yoga. Like... <laughs> Until next time, guys, thank you again. I love you guys, and we'll see you next week on the Suspect Podcast.